Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about contest prep, should you compete, and what to expect. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 49. Today, we're talking about contest prep because this is something that I think, at least for me, this was my foundation and my intro to fitness and health and wellness and nutrition. And for Nicole, I think for you, it was a little bit more of the dance was your intro and then you got into lifting and then you got into competition but mm-hmm. it is something that we have both learned a lot from, and it is something that many people are getting into more so than when I was doing it. I can say that at the very least, because when I was doing it, it wasn't cool. Today, everybody's a competitor. So let's dive right in and talk about what it takes to compete, what you should expect, should you compete, and how to figure all that out. Nicole, where do we want to start on this one? Well, I think the first question is like, what basically is competition and what are some of the things that you should do in terms of your research of how to get started, really? Well, so, I mean, I guess we'll call it bodybuilding competition Mm -hmm. because essentially that's what it is, right? I think that's still like the big moneymaker of the sport. And I think that's like the anchor of the sport, but it has gone in yeah. different directions. So let's talk a little bit about where I kind of want to dive into actually. Let's talk where, about the, the pre-competition. Like, well, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about where the sport was and where the sport is right now. So okay, okay. I, I, I want to dive into, and I'm throwing you a little curveball here. That's but fine. I want to, so when I was competing, it was a few different divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started as, and then the last competition I did was, you know, there were other divisions, but it started as for men, it was bodybuilding. Was there anything else? Not that I'm aware of. No, it was just, it was literally in the just, early, in, in your early, <laughs> it was literally just bodybuilding. And the, you'll kind of get the tone of my thoughts on the sport and my thoughts of, should you compete? And are you mm-hmm. ready to compete? I think because of my experience with it exactly. just being bodybuilding, because mm-hmm. when I was coming up in the sport, it was, well, if you want to compete, you have to get big enough to be a bodybuilder. Right. To even and enter in. There wasn't there weren't any smaller guys. It was literally just you have to grow. Otherwise, you can't you're not going to look like you fit up there. Right. But as the sport has developed and grown from and it's. A- a money standpoint let's be honest this is right so they've created more division so initially let me backtrack so they started with men's bodybuilding and then for women there were three different divisions there was fitness figure and women's bodybuilding yeah now you fast forward today and for men there is physique which are the smallest guys which i think they started very small And there was an easier entry into it. And then they started getting bigger and bigger over time, but not to the point where they were bodybuilders. Right. 
And they also started getting leaner and leaner over time. Like they were right. softer when they started and then they got leaner. Yeah, it was more um, of like a model physique. And now it's kind of developed into a little bit leaner. But yeah, it, not was like, as it was like beach body. Yeah, yeah. That's right? what and I you're was wearing saying. the board shorts and yeah. some of the guys didn't train legs and some of the guys right, did. Right. Now it's like, well, all the guys kind of train legs, I think, especially mm -hmm. the top guys. Yeah. And they're, you know, well, a little bit more well-rounded physiques. And then you've got classic physique, which came later on. I feel like what they did from a sports standpoint, just to interrupt you. And this is why, for me, I understand this more. In, in the dance world, there's what we call feeder programs that feed you into becoming a professional. And so I feel like a lot of these types of categories, while giving people the opportunity to compete in maybe a less aggressive bodybuilding physique, there also have been, become like feeder programs, like bikini girls start out in the bikini, then they can enter into fit body, then they can go into physique, then they can get eventually into bodybuilding if that's something they want to progress through. Or, or some people just don't want to get that big to be a bodybuilder. Right. And they enter in and compete and in another round. There's a lower I guess what you're saying is there's a lower barrier to entry. Yeah, exactly. Right now and they have what's be... called a wellness category, which is. Well, so let's get into the, the women. So, yeah, essentially, it used to just be bodybuilding when I started in the sport for my first two competitions and then it changed and it was so it's uh, now physique, classic physique, which is a little bit bigger. They wear smaller trunks. They have to develop their legs. And then we've got bodybuilding, men's bodybuilding. And then for women, that's mm -hmm. where the other other categories come in. So for women. And now I guess I'm talking NPC here. Uh, they do have that wellness category. And I guess it starts at bikini and wellness and figure is still there. And women's bodybuilding became women's physique because I think they they it was like in they, between the, the women were getting too big. Yeah, yeah. And nobody really wanted to see that anymore. So they switched it and they made them a little bit smaller, but still super muscular. And they created women's physique. Yeah. Well, it also depends on the federation. So you're talking NPC that has different categories than some of the other federations that I've competed in where like, I mean, you can do WBFF, which is more like beauty pageant where there's a gown section in a bikini, which is the bikini girls. There's a fit body, which is kind of like, you know, sporty outfits with like headdresses and feathers is like all kinds of crazy stuff. And then they do kind of like a, a more hardcore body. That's why they call it fit body. And then they have the bodybuilding. There's a lot of variables now in terms of the federation, the category you enter in and how long it takes to get there and what you're looking to achieve. So it's definitely kind of blown up from when you competed to even when I competed. And I competed when I turned 40 as a way to show women in their 40s that they could still step on stage in a bikini and look great at any age. That was kind of well, my here's my goal. Thing. Here's my thing. And I women often get this misconception. And I tell women all the time, women are in their prime physique wise yeah. in their 40s. Mm -hmm. You train in your 20s, you train in your or your late teens into your 20s, you train in your 30s and you peak in your 40s. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes when women come to me, you know, from a, a 
just a aesthetic. I want to look good standpoint. And yeah. you're like, oh, well, I'm 40. It's too late. I'm like, no way. No, you're in your prime right now. Like yeah. you can develop the best physique of your life because women's physiques peak in their 40s. And we mm-hmm. see that evident in the age of the top competitors. Yeah. Nicole Wilkins, for example. Perfect yeah. example. Like she competed very well in her late 30s, early 40s. They they have a better opportunity where for men in the sport of bodybuilding, they peak in their mid 30s. Yeah. You know, early to mid 30s. Yeah. And I just did it. I honestly I was I mean, I'm a trainer and I wanted people to see that at any age, specifically my female clients, that you can do this. And it was a like I've said in many podcasts, it was an absolute blast. So it depends on what you're looking like the level of entry, I guess, and then what you're looking to achieve. You know, a lot of women that I see doing it are looking for a greater commitment and they need an end point, like something to show that they did all this hard work. So to step on stage and compete, you know, it's a higher level of determination, commitment, you know, all that type of stuff that, you know, you step on stage and actually have something to show for all your hard work. So <laughs> let's get into the different organizations and kind of, you know, how to choose where you fit. And Nicole, I think you could speak more to the, the women's side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally what I've known from the bodybuilding side of things is it's been OCB, which mm-hmm. uses height classes, mm-hmm. INBF, which uses weight classes. And those are the natural drug tested drug free organizations and then mm-hmm. you have the npc which then feeds into the ifbb which is like hardcore competitive bodybuilder yeah. i mean these guys are the as big as they come mm-hmm. and, and so remember they go amateur each of those federations have, has an amateur event that you compete in that you have to win your class you have to win overall in order to get a pro card to then compete in some of the more in compete in the actual pro categories to get to the next level of competition. Like again, well, so it's, you know, so like NPC would be national qualifier. So you would do a national qualifier yeah. and you go off to compete in nationals. And then if you went at nationals, you go off to be a professional bodybuilder and then you right. work your way up the rank, the ranks in the IFBB. Right. Um, INBF feeds into the WNBF mm-hmm. OCB. I don't really know where that feeds into. I've never competed in OCB. Me neither. And then, Nicole, what else is there? The WBFF is its own program in itself. All right. So let's get I want to next get into how do you know if you're ready to compete? And I mean, mm-hmm. listen, honestly, Nicole, I, I know you have a difference of opinion here, but if you ha- don't have five years of training under your belt, I'm like, you're not like muscular developed in a, like you're you haven't matured enough in the sport mm-hmm. in your training to really be able to dive in there. You're still learning about your body. Well, I wouldn't say we have different year, opinion. Two years. You say five years. I say three. So, I mean. I, you know, and this is where I say I, I have this bias because I had to train for five years before I could step on stage. Yeah. Because you had to earn the right to compete because all there was was bodybuilding. And yeah. then I kind of get a little butt hurt when somebody works out for six months. <laughs> yeah, and somebody works out for six and- months, not even a pro card, but they just think that like they can just step on stage. And I'm like, yeah. who the fuck are you to think that you can jump on stage after six months of working out? You're still skinny fat. Like, well, you don't know. Everybody's physiques are different. And and here's my thing. I my entry into how do you know when you're ready to compete 
on top of your training age, which is basically what you're talking about, how long have you been lifting? How long have you been? Have you dieted down before? Do you do you, do you have squat? Any? To, do you squat to depth? Do you go all the way down on your bench press? <laughs> like you've got guys right. here that don't even know how to work out yet, and then they want right. to compete. Well, okay. So these are all the questions that we ask people, or I ask clients to come to me and say, I'm interested in competing. And we lay it all out for them. Like these are the things that you have to kind of get under your belt. It's like, again, if, if you're entering in as a freshman and you want to graduate, you can't just speed through that quickly. You're talking, right, so you have to have those years your, under your belt. With your analogy, if you're entering in as a freshman and you're in high school and there's four years of high school, then you should be training for more than three years. Okay. Well, fair. So three, four, five years, like somewhere in that vicinity, but some people may enter, like I've had people come to me that have really great natural physiques. They've only been training a couple years. And part of the reason why they want to compete is because they have this natural physique and they think, well, I may have a chance. What can I do? I, I feel like I'm just a little bit more open all right, so, to the conversation. That's all right. All. So regardless of time now, how do you determine, Nicole, how would you determine if somebody's ready? Let's say somebody came to you and they said, hey, Nicole, I want to compete. Regardless of time, you look at this person or yeah. you have a conversation with this person. What are you going to tell that individual? It's a lot of questions. One, the first question is, are you tracking your food? Do you understand macronutrients? Have you ever cut calories? Have you ever, you know, where are you eating right now? I mean, I have so many questions and I go through all of those questions and ask them not only where they are from a nutrition standpoint and a training standpoint, then I ask them, why do they want to compete? What is their why? What is the goal? Have they done any research education behind what competition or what show or what federation? Do they know anybody that's done it before? Do they have support at home? Because this is pretty intense stuff. Do they understand the level of commitment? And then, you know, if we we hammer out all those details and they're, st they're still sitting in the office with me, then I say, okay, this is what it's going to take for you to get started. One, it's like any other nutrition conversation. If they've been journaling their food and they're on point and they already are like a head start, then we can pick up where we started and, and get running. But if they've never journaled their food before and they have no kind of nutritional background, I'm like, you have to at least be with me for six months to a year before we have this conversation. It may go fast if they're adhere to everything really well. It's like any other nutrition client with any other goal. I just kind of lay everything out. I'm very honest with them about that. I Everybody has a different entry point. So it really depends on where they're starting. Well, yeah. So it is kind of like every, any other, like, listen, you're coaching them, you know, week to week, you're doing check-ins, weigh-ins, things like that. So it's kind of like every other uh, client, but the difference is it's not a sustainable goal. No. And the measures that you have to take to get there are going to be very radical, which is why it's not sustainable. Right. Also, you can't sustain that low level of body fat. Right. And, and I that's think, what we talk about. And I think there's a piece here that, Nicole, I think we should jump in and talk about the women competing mm -hmm. and their low level of body fat, just like not just in bodybuilding competition, but also in other sports mm -hmm. uh, where you tend to be on the leaner, leaner side. And I think you have to understand some of the risks associated with that. Absolutely. So we were talking about loss of menstrual cycle when mm -hmm. you are that lean and that affects your Everything. estrogen, your bone density, uh, it, it, the female athlete triad, right? Amenorrhea. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely something like that's not sustainable. And I, I will say that this is also something that we see in women that in general restrict their calories for a long <laughs> period of time. And they, 
get too lean and they are basically starving themselves is that they lose their menstrual cycle. So it is something that, Mm -hmm. you know, it is a possibility. It's very likely that you're going to lose that menstrual cycle and it's not Mm -hmm. somewhere that you can stay. But yeah, I just wanted to dive into that a little bit so that you, you know, especially for women, you know what you're getting yourself into when you're doing. Yeah, which is why we pre we pre-screen, I guess is the word. If, if you have had females come to me already in that situation and then they're like, I want to compete. Well, no, no, no. We have to get your body back up to normal function and then we can revisit that conversation. But. And then this gets into, you know, the moment that you're ready to compete and like, where are you in your phase of eating and dieting? Mm -hmm. Right. Have you done a bulking phase? Have you built lean muscle mass? Mm -hmm. Have you been focused on that? Or have you just been in a deficit for a long period of time? Because I think if somebody comes to me and they say, I've been in a deficit for three, four, five, six months, however long it is. And, and I've turned people down for competition. I've turned down people for uh, for various reasons. And I've one of the reasons is you're already in a diet, so I have nowhere to go with you. So you need to build back up and we need to create a surplus. Maybe you should do a solid off season and then Mm -hmm. grow. We'll revisit that conversation in six months and then, Mm -hmm. okay, like we're ready to rock. The other reason that I've turned down people and I'll be open about my opinions about drug use in the sport of bodybuilding. I don't have a problem with drug use in the sport of bodybuilding because it's in as long as you're not competing in a natural organization. Right. I do think if you're competing in a untested organization and you decide to go that route, that is your decision. I I just think that you should do it safely. Well, this is what I was going to say. And I've turned people down. I had somebody reach out to me at one point that said, (laughs) hey, I my coach like fucked me over and disappeared. And this happens a lot. There's a lot of scummy, really bad coaches. My coach fucked me over, disappeared, left me in the middle of prep, isn't answering me. And I don't know what to do. And can you finish this prep for me? Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, well, dude, you should have come to me from the start. First of all. Second of all, how long have you been taking anabolic drugs? Mm -hmm. And the. Yeah, I think the answer was like nine months. And I'm like, I'm not going to continue to coach you for the next three months because you're you're not it's not healthy. You've been taking a lot of drugs for a long period of time Mm -hmm. Go to come off the drugs. Go get your blood work done. Make sure you're healthy. Right. Right. And then come back to me after you've had some time off and your insulin receptors are upregulated and your testosterone receptors are upregulated and your you make sure your liver enzymes are healthy and mm-hmm. you're checking your creatinine ratios and your kidneys are functioning properly and make sure that your testosterone can bounce back and you've done post cycle yeah. therapy like there's a lot that goes into this mm-hmm. so you need to really especially in the untested organizations like you're taking some risk. And I, I really do think that anybody, there are people that will blow off the risk of using anabolic steroids. And I, I'm yeah. like, you're a fool if you don't think that that's affecting your body, because at that point, at that level of competition, yeah, you're not using these drugs, you're abusing them. Exactly. Well, so that's the other tip of the scale is you get people that are competing because it's okay for them to Uh, have disordered eating issues like it's a space for them to be in where it actually almost glorifies or makes it okay so you have both ends of the spectrum kind of when it comes to competition I've seen girls that enter into competition because 
they think they can stay in a deficit and stay lean all year round. And they don't care if they have their periods and they really are abusing their bodies. And it's uh, a place for them to live in that space and be okay with it or get away with it. Whatever word you want to use. You know what I'm saying? You have to take care of yourself and your health because you have one body and it's don't die for this sport. Right. It's not. It's not that no. serious. Uh, now, listen. listen, if you're going to be a top, top, top right. level professional bodybuilder or professional competitor, that's another story. Yeah, you're making a, a living different... doing that. And, right. you know, you have enough money to get the right doctors and to, you know, check yourself out and make sure that you're doing things the right way. But, yeah, you know, if you're just doing this for fun and you're going to do this for the next 10 years and then you're going to yeah. stop doing it, I don't mm. think it's worth the risk for you. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Well, I say this all the time from an amateur standpoint, which obviously is what I did for bikini. I just wanted to meet some really great girls, get in great shape or get in, show people that I could do it or show myself. I shouldn't even say people, but show myself I could do it. And I really had no plan on doing it for more than like a couple of shows. I just wanted to enter and have some fun. So I think that the re the questioning as to why you want to do this is an, an important piece when you are screening people to take them on as clients. If you get someone, if someone comes to me and says, and they're, you know, young and they say, I'm entering in, I want to make a career of this. That's a whole different conversation, a whole different setup of structure and plan. This is serious, but most of the people, the remaining crew are really just looking to have a goal. And I think that's where all these other divisions have kind of popped up is because the bodybuilding industry realized they can make some money. It's, you know, entertaining. People can do it and have fun and set goals. And it's kind of a higher level of discipline, just like something um, like the CrossFit games, like the the CrossFit community came up, they developed a, a CrossFit games kind of equivalent to the a bodybuilding world. They wanted to have some place where people could compete in the type of training that they did. It's normal to have that from a, um, a business standpoint, I will say, like to be really honest, that creates a lot of drive and interest in the sport, the industry and the field. So f- for us in fitness, I think it's actually incredible because if you think about it, because they have all these new categories, we now have clients that want to come to us and are looking for someone to help them. So from a business standpoint, it creates, you know, opportunity for us. But from the client standpoint, you know, there's yeah, so I mean, many listen, levels. Listen, uh, bodybuilding is big business, right? Not, not even from the competitor standpoint, also from think supplements, the, food, the su- yep, training, supplements, I mean, clothes, geez. sneakers, yeah. right? Like all, all every business gets like everybody yeah. wins Yeah. from that standpoint. Now, I will say something, Nicole, as you mentioned discipline. And I will say that the one number one thing that I take for took from my bodybuilding is that mm-hmm. if I put and my mother used to tell me yeah, this all the time, mm-hmm. if you put as much energy into <laughs> your school and your studies as as you did in your bodybuilding, because I was hardcore, like live, breathe, sleep. That's all I did. Yeah, I didn't give a shit about anything else. And I just wanted to be a bodybuilder until I hit a crossroad where I was like, all right, dude, like this isn't really the healthiest thing for you to do. And then I always battled between do I want to be smarter or bigger? And like I was every time I focused <laughs> on one, the other one kind of like tipped away a little bit. Yeah. And I didn't really feel like I had balance in my life. And yeah, you know, so now I'm like, cool. I want to look good, feel good, be healthy. But the discipline that I learned and I did end up taking that 
drive into my studies Mm -hmm. and that discipline into my studies, because, you know, now here I am continuously studying in the field that I love. If you can learn that skill in one area of your life and you can harness that and act that way, like I try to act that way with everything I do now. Yeah. It's like, all right, I'm all in on everything that I do, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of work, but it's very rewarding. And I think the one biggest piece that I learned from the sport of bodybuilding was delayed gratification is the best feeling in the world. Because when I would step on that stage, Mm -hmm. I hated the entire process. I was (laughs) like, this fucking sucks. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm training twice a day. I'm on the Stairmaster for an hour and a half in the morning. I'm coming back at night to lift. I'm hungry all I'm like I'm tired like it's exhausting I know people don't realize that and but and it sucked the entire time it even sucked when I was backstage I remember I was so depleted in one of my competitions that I coughed and I got so lightheaded and I went to turn around to walk (laughs) like I was behind the curtain about to walk on stage and Mm -hmm. I went to turn around to be like I can't do this I'm so depleted I'm gonna pass out And I turn around and I look and there's just like this flock of giant men behind me. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't even go anywhere, even if I wanted to right now. So I'm getting on that stage. Right. (laughs) It's like you want to quit up until you get to that stage. Like every you have to fight every single instinct to quit your body. Your brain does not want to do that. Your brain is like, what are you doing? Yeah, you have to fight that until you get on that stage. But once you get on that stage, you're like, man, that all goes away. And you're like, this is what I worked my ass off for. Right. I'm just going to come here and be like, I mean, I was like a cocky motherfucker on that stage. (laughs) Like I was like, I'm going to fucking dominate this shit. Right. And that is the best feeling in the world. That delayed gratification, months and months of work for that one moment. Yep. To me is one of the most beautiful things. And the reason why I want to kind of really detail that is because Mm -hmm. if you do that in any area of your life, and this goes out to our clients listening to this, if you make those sacrifices and we've talked about this sacrifice versus suffering and some level of suffering and what you have to sacrifice to hit your goals, you will be so proud of yourself when you actually achieve that. And it's going to be the greatest feeling in the world. And you can harness that and put that anywhere in your life. Yeah. Well, I was reading about what's the relay race with the batons when you run. Is it just a relay or is it just called a relay A relay? Well, I was reading about one of the women, the Olympians. She was talking about her training and she was like, I trained for two years to run nine seconds, nine seconds and hand the baton off to (laughs) the next person, the person in front of me. And I I read that line like probably six or seven times because to think that you're a piece of that team and your job is only to run as fast that nine seconds all out for it to pass that baton onto someone is pretty incredible to think that she did all that work for that one moment and getting on stage, you know, in dance, we have a two minute routine. So you train an entire year for a performance that's two minutes long to get on a bodybuilding stage. What do you want? Maybe six minutes tops or something just to go through your posing and move around. And you do all that training to lead up to that one day, all that mental like fatigue that you go through to push through and fight and get on and get, get it done 
it is rewarding when you create that success. So I love that you you call it mental fatigue because like, yeah, physically you're tired, but the harder piece is mentally. Yes. The mental piece is way harder than the physical piece. The physical I can get through the the, the mental is like you really got to be tough and you got to dig down deep. Yeah. Now, uh, let's get into that because let's kind of go into, OK, so you think you're ready to compete. Mm hmm. You have been you have a, a number of years of training under your belt. You've developed a pretty good foundation. Mm -hmm. You've been in a surplus. You've been building lean mass, right? Whatever mm -hmm. organization you're in, you still have to build, right? Bikini girls as well. They have to build some muscle. They have to have yeah. some quote unquote tone. I hate using that word, but I'm going to. It's not it. tone. You need muscle. Yeah. They have some muscle. Figure. Um, you know, you got to build your booty. Mm -hmm. Booty, shoulder, uh, abs. Now, programming obviously is going to vary from person to person, division to division, male mm -hmm. to female, like you're going to train differently, but you're ready to compete. And let's get into what you're going to go through in the process of competing. So just like any other diet strategy, you need to establish what your baseline macros are now. And mm -hmm. then you need to figure out, okay, how am I going to create a deficit from here? Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to create a calorie deficit to lose body fat. The important thing to note is that the best preps are the ones where you keep the most muscle mass. Right. And I've done it where I've kept more muscle mass and I've kept less and I've been behind schedule and I've been ahead of schedule. Right. And there's been all these different variations of preps and no one prep is ever the same as another. Yeah. And you learn from each prep what works mm -hmm. and what doesn't the you're going to create a calorie deficit. My typical starting point is just like with any other client. Yeah. 40% carbs, 30% protein, 30% fat. And let's say I'm starting a male out, uh, you know, muscular male out at like 3000 calories in their prep or 3,500 calories in their bodybuilding prep, which isn't like out of the reach or out of the realm of what I would recommend for, you know, mm -hmm. a bigger person that's more muscular. And then I would start to cut them down. And what I would do is I would mm -hmm. play with their carbs and play with their fat and figure yep. out like where they're responding best. Which one do I want to taper down? You do want some carbohydrates because you do want to keep some muscle and you do want to keep some strength. And mm -hmm. we do know that carbohydrates, especially post-workout, we know that they have an anti-catabolic effect, right? Mm -hmm. So you definitely want to get that in. You definitely want to get an adequate protein because protein is going to be muscle sparing. Yeah. Uh, and this is the instance where I typically would recommend branch chain amino acids, which I'm not huge on for your average dieter or your average individual. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about, especially leading closer to the show, severe or more severe Definitely. calorie restriction, mm -hmm. you want to maintain muscle protein synthesis even during your training. So what I would do is I'd say, hey, branch chain amino acids in your water jug or in your water bottle or whatever you're drinking out of, mm -hmm. carry that around and just drink that all day. And yeah. even through your workout or especially through your workout, you mm -hmm. want to uh, just basically be like feeding yourself amino acids or protein all day. I mean, that's pretty much the gist of it. Now you'll be cutting your calories down, cutting your calories down. Now, when I was competing, I, this was before I knew anything about calorie cycling, carb mm -hmm. cycling, right? All of those different strategies that you can use. And I think by default, we would do a calorie cycle or we would do diet breaks I think you did, but you just they but didn't weren't named. We just that. did cheat days. Yeah, yeah. Did, and I think that's where the the I think the word the terminology cheat day kind yeah, of stems came. from now. Yeah. And people are like, 
that word kind of ha- it has a bad stigma well, to it. When because- you talk about the mindset and the mental capacity of relation food relationships, uh, listen. Nobody talked about that when you competed. And even when I dated guys when I was in my 20s that were bodybuilders, nobody talked about that stuff. It was just this is what you had to do to compete. So we have evolved from a food psychology, food relationship. All of this has now become something in the industry in itself. And so because a lot of competitors can tip into poor relationships with food, because of shitty coaches and maybe not prepping long enough and not doing the pre-work we've, I entered into it in a very different place than you started. When I entered in, I had to train and meet with my coach for like four or five months before I was able to then meet with him for a true prep. So it's, it was, it's very different. And even now, seven years later from when I competed, I just, I am prepping guys now for competition and females for both bikini and and figure. And I'm doing things completely different than what my coach did for me. It's a whole different ball game because we're educated more about how the body works and how to get people into this place without them losing their menstrual cycles, without them getting to a place where they're miserable and dizzy backstage and all the things like there's better ways to do this now. And we have more information. Yeah. And back to my unplanned calorie cycling, my cheating. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I would lose a pretty rapid amount of weight mm-hmm. in that week after I would do a cheat day. Yeah. Yeah. And it was always just like, OK, once a week, I'm going to do a cheat day and then pounds would just drop off. And yeah, I know now from the science of it. Exactly. Uh, the physique science is that when you increase even for a day, uh, there is an effect on your metabolic rate and you're constantly calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit. And you're decreasing your resting metabolic rate or your basal metabolic rate. And you have to boost that up. So we were doing that by default, not even knowing that we were doing it. We were just mm-hmm. like, I'm going to lose my mind if I don't eat some pizza well, and see, ice cream so and this whatever. Is, see, this is the biggest, this is the part that we now have the research behind. Not only from a physiological standpoint, does it take the stress load off of your body? So your metabolism, quote unquote, gets a break and you can get back to dieting from a food relationship and a mindset perspective, it gives you a break. Like you actually get to have taste, flavor, texture of foods that you haven't been eating because you've been eating quote unquote, super clean or within your scope of your deficit, but you allow yourself that break and it, it physiologically and mentally gives you a break so that when you go back into dieting, you feel refreshed and refed. That's where the word refeed. And it gives you something to look forward to. Exactly. I think is part of the reason why planned diet breaks work more effectively than unplanned because Mm -hmm. it's like, all right, cool. Like I can stay on track for this week and Mm -hmm. I have something to look forward to on the day or the the few days where I calorie cycle. And you can do that for a few days, bring your calories up for a few Mm -hmm. days bring them down, right? There are multiple different strategies and you kind of are playing by ear and you're taking it week by week, especially as you approach towards the end and the final four weeks where it's, uh, you know, that's where you're like in your head in the final four and you're like, it's the final (laughs) countdown. Like you're in, you're like really focused. It's coming closer, you know, So you get to this point. So you've been calorie cycling. Your calories have gone up. Your calories have gone down. You've gone further into deficits. You've upped your cardio. Now, what I will say is 
uh, I found that one of the best approaches that you can take is upping your cardio and continuously doing uh, more cardio instead of starving yourself. Because there is, I think, a threshold where you're eating too little calories and you are going to go catabolic mm-hmm. and lose muscle mass, regardless if you're taking anabolics yeah, yeah. or not. And you need to make sure that, you know, there's a, there's a point where I'm like, well, I'd rather just increase expenditure because you also have to think about the nutrients that are coming into your body or not yes. coming into your body. Yeah. So you have to make sure that you are getting adequate nutrition and nutrients for your meta- metabolism to even function properly. Yeah. You know, along the way, there are some supplements. Like I would have people take a multivitamin, uh, CLA conjugated linoleic acid. If you don't know what that is, there's a pretty decent amount of good research that shows that CLA at two, I think it was 2000 milligrams, three times a day would help to increase fat loss. Now I don't want anybody to take this out of context. Like you're talking people that are dialed down and need that extra one or 2% help. Like it's not a miracle, but you know, when you are dialed down that much on your nutrition, Mm -hmm. every little bit that you do helps your water intake, your supplementation, right? So a multivitamin is in there. A CLA is in there. And interestingly enough, the CLA actually in the research shows that for some reason it only works and aids in fat loss and creates slightly more fat loss in individuals that train and work out. Like they've repeated these studies with people who don't work out and it doesn't create more fat loss in those people. Now CLA is something that you'll (laughs) find. It's a fatty acid. It's something that you'll find in higher concentrations in beef. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's something that I've often used with competitors. And sometimes I've used it with non-competitor clients that really wanted to dial down and really get it to that low body fat percentage. Mm -hmm. The other supplement that is often recommended by coaches. And I say, if a coach recommends L-carnitine, just fucking run. Because, and you know what the problem is, is that some of the top bodybuilding coaches in the world mm-hmm. recommend L-carnitine. And I'm like, well, you guys are fucking idiots because if you read the research on L-carnitine, because but see, sucks. here's the thing you're, this is the, like, we're talking kind of the pro. I always say this to people that come to me about competition, an amateur level and a pro level within the bodybuilding world function on two completely different levels. Okay. The pro guys, these coaches that you're talking about. They're talking about professional athletes here that are yeah, like, but I don't give a shit who they're talking about. This no, but just hear me work. out. They're <laughs> just hear me out. These guys are coming to these coaches, going, "What's the thing I can do to get me that extra?" Like they're pushing the coaches. The coaches are pushing back together. They're going to try and put their best product on stage. They're in the professionals. They're up against beasts. That's one aspect of things. I'm talking about for the person that's like, "I want to do a show. It's my first time." That's totally different. You're talking about I don't amateur think so. competition. You want to look your best on stage. You do, but you you can't. And you if you have a client that do... it's their first show and they're super dialed in, why not give them some supplements and help them with that? And also, I will I say, would, I but will I'm just say this too. I will say this too, that oftentimes there is an effect, and I guarantee you I can find a study on this, that if you are taking supplements, you, mentally... you are going to be more likely to stick to your plan because you think all of that combined is going to help you. Right. I, I hear what you're saying. I totally get it. But I just right, am so a, a more old school moving along. 
Don't point your finger at me. People the, just pointing his finger at the me. The other thing that <laughs> the other thing that I oftentimes recommend, especially in the beginning of prep, is creatine monohydrate because well, it's gonna yes. help you to keep your strength up when you're in that deficit. A hundred percent. Your power output. So that's yes. another thing that I'd recommend. And you're get into your last four weeks, and your last four weeks are really the kind They're of make challenging. or break. So now there are thoughts around. Should you carb load? Should you not carb load? I carb loaded back then in my first competition. I don't think that first time competitors like, hey, if you're lean enough and you look good, mm -hmm. then just get on stage. Don't focus on manipulating your sodium, your water, your carbohydrates. Now, is there science behind manipulating carbohydrates? Yes, we've taken some of the science in bodybuilding. We've taken some of the science from uh, triathletes and cyclists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and marathon runners and what we know from that science is that you the the theory kind of works like this so what we know is that when you do biopsies of certain muscles before and after a carb depletion carb load so we'll say okay we're going to deplete your carbohydrates you're not going to have any carbohydrates you're going to work out those muscles and you are going to deplete all of the glycogen which is your body's preferred source of carbohydrates stored in your muscles for immediate energy mm -hmm. you're going to deplete all of that and then you are going to carb load. So you do a three day carb depletion mm -hmm. and then you are going to load by eating a ton of carbs. Right. And this is where like carving up before a marathon where that stuff mm -hmm. comes from. You're going to eat a ton of carbs leading up to the show. And what the research for these endurance athletes shows is that when they do that second biopsy, that muscle is able to hold three times the amount of glycogen and it's called glycogen supercompensation. So your body is compensating for the fact that it didn't have any. Now, the thought is in bodybuilding is that when you carb load, you mm -hmm. are increasing the amount of glycogen in your muscle cells. Therefore, you are increasing the volume of those cells. Mm -hmm. And that is going to allow you to appear bigger and more muscular on stage. Pump the pump. Now, there's this can <laughs> backfire on you, too, mm -hmm. because if you overfill carbohydrates, Yes. You so if this is where I say first time competitor, like you don't really know your body from a competitive standpoint yet. Yeah. So why take the risk? Because if you underfeed carbohydrates, you're going to come in flat. And then if you overfeed carbohydrates, yeah, you're going to spill, you're going to spill over and then you're going to have these smooth looking muscles because you're going to have you're going to be holding water from inside of your muscle is going to, you know, reverse and go out of your muscle. And you're not going to be able to see striations, yeah. and separations between muscles. So why even take the risk? I think I say this all the time. It depends on the person. It depends on the prep, depends on the, the, the well, day like, before the show. You're, and I, I and rest periods are huge when it comes to that type of, you know, spill or flat or all. And I, and I will say within those last four weeks in your kind of refeeds, like you can do carb depletion, yeah. carb loads. Yeah. As trials. Right. That's exactly what we do. Test out. it out. Yep. Exactly. Now, typically yep. I'd say, I forget what it was. It was either 40, 48 or 72 hours to reach full, full muscle glycogen saturation. Mm -hmm. So like one day of giving yourself more carbohydrates, isn't going to be enough for that. Full no, I usually do like three days and then, but it depends on the person. I have one guy that I, that I, I didn't even carb load. I just, changed the type of carbohydrates because his body responds differently to some versus others. And I gave him some refeeds and we figured out the perfect kind of strategy 
And then I just stuck with that for the last four weeks and kind of allowed his body to fluctuate. And I could see what the best response was. And then that was the week before his show's like structured plan. And he looks amazing. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Well, that's because you coached him. The fact well, of course. Boss but... Blasi. Now, <laughs> the one thing that I will say, and I, I want to kind of leave, I guess, this episode on this note. I think we pretty much covered everything. Oh my God. We did, but there's so much more to talk about. I'm going to wrap it up by saying this, and I think we forgot to mention one thing, which is how long is your prep going to be? And it depends how lean you are. So it's going to be anywhere from 12 to 20 weeks, 12 weeks if you're on the leaner side, 20 weeks if you're on the heavy side. I give could be longer if I give women a little bit more time because hormonally they're very different than men are. Men can Mm -hmm. take can, you know, take that weight down and maintain that muscle a lot easier than women can. It's Mm -hmm. the unfortunate truth. But the the part I want to leave you on is be prepared for four weeks out, because I think that's the toughest part mentally. And Mm -hmm. that is where I see people that are like, I'm going to compete. And then they drop off and they don't compete when they hit that four week out mark. I mm-hmm. always mentally prepared for being four weeks out of competition because that is the ha- the hardest part. You're working yeah. the hardest. You're working yeah. out more frequently. You are working out longer. You're getting really tired. You are depleted. Mm-hmm. And like four weeks out is really like I will say like that's where boys become men. You're going to yeah. you're going to either evolve into a man and you're going to get some grit and you're going to really kind of tough through this or you're going to decide, ah, fuck it. It's not really a goal. I really want to hit and how bad you want it is going to really determine how you're going to get through those last four weeks. Yeah. Well, I also think before we go just to, to hold off, hold you off on ending right now, the last four weeks, then you hit your show. Then what do you do? The biggest mistake people make is after the show, how they reverse diet and go back up to maintenance and get back into a healthier mindset. That can be really challenging. And a lot of people mess that up. They end up just going back to their old way of eating, stop training or don't train as hard. And if you're not with a coach after the show, that to me is the most important time to rebalance your body. Well, you have to reverse diet, just like we talk about with other clients. Now, and that's the problem is that you know, these women, especially mm-hmm. men and women, men do it too. That, that come out of this. And it's hard. I understand that it's hard from a, a discipline standpoint. Like, yeah, yeah, you've just spent anywhere between 12 and 20 weeks dieting your face off for this event. And now the event's over. And now you're expected to still eat clean, stay on track. The best competitors do that, though. And well, this is- why I'm saying it's like no other goal in the sense that, you know, we tell people that are in weight loss goals, you can't live this lifestyle for 20 weeks and then go back to your old way of living and expect to have the the new body you just developed. The same thing for competitors even more because their relationship with food gets really twisted because they're in a severe deficit and a lot of coaches really restrict the types of food that they're eating. And then on show day, they're quote unquote carb loading and eating candy and chocolate and whatever type of carbs to get on stage, you have that taste again for those types of food. And then the next day you wake up and it's over and everyone's like, okay, now what? Like, can I go back and eat the pizza for, I had pizza for dinner. A lot of people go out and celebrate. And then that can snowball. This is, this is a really important piece because this is where the danger of the psychological aspect of food relationships can really take a turn for the worse. Not only do you gain weight, but it's hard to reel that back in. You have to pick up where you left off, get back to your training and keep going 
and slowly progress back into what you consider maintenance level, quote unquote, normal life. And I just really think that that's the biggest piece of everything that we're talking about leading into the show is one thing, but heading out of the show is even more important and you need to stick with your coach throughout the whole process. Okay, I'm done. Phenomenal point, Nicole. And <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end with the, Nicole's point of what to do when you're ending your show. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. Bye.